is the forward movement of time guaranteed? How about progress in technology and politics? And would life in a reversing world feel any different from life in our own? Baoshu's What Has Passed Shall In Kinder Light Appear is a love story, and it's also a record of a lifetime set in just such a reversing world. So in this episode, we're going to see what it has to say. I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. This is going to be the very last episode in our sci-fi season, and the first episode of 2020, so Happy New Year. Um, This is a solo episode, it's just me, there's no guest. I thought, since every single episode in the sci-fi season has been me and a guest, I wanted to see what it would feel like, or be like, or whatever, uh, with just myself rambling on. So you have that to look forward to, guys. If you've been listening to the last couple of episodes, you'll know that before we begin this episode proper, it's time for the Trichofic News. So I've just got two news items today. Uh, One is actual recent happenings. One is, it's kind of just me relaying some interesting information that is not particularly hot off the presses. So the first and more hot off the press item it's a new story that's up on Clark's World, the sci-fi uh, online magazine which publishes a lot of new translated Chinese sci-fi. And it's by Chen Fan, our former guest and author of Tide. So this new story is called The Ancestral Temple in a Box. And it's not translated by Ken Liu. This is one of the uh, other translators of Chinese sci-fi who's particularly prominent. And as far as I'm aware, she's kind of... I don't know if apprentice or protege or what the right term is, but um, it's Emily Jin who has worked alongside Ken Leo before, and she's the translator of this story. I think I've mentioned her in previous episodes. Uh, I'm mentioning this story in particular because it deals with the region of Guangdong province uh, called Chaozhou and the Chaoshan or Tao Tiaochou, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But anyway, let's just say the Chaoshan culture that I discussed a bit with um, Chiu Fan in our episode 18 on Waste Tide, because he's from that particular region, and I'm really interested to see if the way he represents the Chaoshan culture and the Chaoshan uh, topolect, that is local dialect or local language, uh, I want to see how that compares with how he did it in Waste Tide, and it's I'm interested to see that it's not a one-off; it's something that he's not a theme, maybe a theme is not the right word, but it's a focus that he's returning to. Maybe focus also isn't the right word. Um, anyway, that's the first news item. The second news item is it's about Chuang. So this is this is not new, but if you haven't heard of it, I think you should. So I, I found out via, I think, Twitter that there is a online blog and a journal which is which is uh, it's definitely non-fiction, so I couldn't do an episode about it for the show. I could do a, maybe a Patreon episode. Uh, it's a, And it's mostly English language as well. Um, there is a little bit of translated content. But it's a, it's a journal which looks at uh, Chinese, I guess, politics, mostly politics, but economics as well, and maybe a little bit of uh, history and culture. And it looks at it from a, I guess, a Marxist or contemporary communist perspective, and it gives analysis. So. I purchased issues one and two. In uh, the UK, they're distributed by AK Press, who are actually based in 
I don't know if they're only based in Edinburgh, but certainly my local AK Press distributor is in Edinburgh, and I actually reached out and visited their little warehouse thing, and it was I was made a cup of tea because that is what um, good anarchist book distributors do. Apparently, they make you tea. So the first issue is called Dead Generations. I just finished reading that and I will probably discuss it in depth in a Patreon episode, but it's cool. And the second issue is called Frontiers and it looks at, I think, what you might expect. Um, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, all the kind of quote-unquote frontiers of, of modern China and the political struggles or issues that arise from them. They're Working on the third and fourth issues, I don't know if they're going to come out together or whether if the third one will come first, the fourth will come later. But in any case, uh, their website is chuang, that is spelled C-H-U-A-N-G, chuangcn.org slash about. They've got a Twitter as well, you can find out stuff that way. Anyway, that's the news. So, on with the show. The show is on What Has Passed in Kinder Light Shall Appear, quite a mouthful there, by Baoshu. So, this story's Chinese name is Da Shi Dai. Let me just check if I'm doing the tones right. Da Shi Dai. Yeah, Da Shi Dai. And that literal, literally translates to something like Great Era, or if it was a really bad translation, Big Time. But yeah, Great Era. So, a, a translated name pretty much completely different from the original Chinese, but both with the idea of time in there. So the English title is in fact a quote, and it's from a poem by the Russian poet Alexander Pushkin. I wasn't actually able to find out which poem it is, and I think that's because the text is a translation. It's a new, well, it's a new translation. If if there are previous versions, they could be rendered very differently. Uh, so there's two verses from that poem in Baoshu's story, two verses together, and in a footnote from Ken Leo, uh, he tells us that there are 2014 translation by Anatoly Belilovsky, who is a, well, one of the things he is, is a friend of Ken Leo. I know that because Ken Leo notes in the intro to Baoshu's story in Broken Stars uh, that Anatoly is his friend. So I got that from the book itself, but I did a little bit of googling and I found that Anatoly really is quite an interesting guy. He's, he's a Russian-American, from what I could gather, and he's both a paediatrician and a published sci-fi writer. And from what I could glean, I didn't read any of his stories, but I did glance through a couple of them. He seems to write sci-fi about Russian literature and writers, so kind of fantastical stories, maybe with future or technology elements, I'm not sure. And get people like Pushkin appear in these stories. So, hmm, interesting, right? So waffling about the, this one little title and translated verse of poetry aside, what's the story actually about? Well, I'm going to use someone else's words, the translator's words. I found a blog post on the original, uh, well, the publisher in North America for uh, Ken Leo's translated Chinese sci-fi books is Tor. The rest of the world, it's the British publisher Head of Zeus. So I suppose when I say original publisher, I mean the original publisher in translation. Gosh, I'm waffling. So anyway, I found a blog post on Tor.com where Ken Leo, uh, the translator, talks about his favourite lines from different stories in Broken Stars, which is, I don't, I don't think I've mentioned in this episode, I have in previous ones, that's the second collection of translated Chinese sci-fi short stories edited by and compiled by and translated by Ken Leo. So Broken Stars is where I read what has passed showing Kinder Light appear, and it's one of the stories which 
in this blog post, Ken Leo takes his favorite lines and kind of elaborates on why he likes those lines or why he likes the story so much. So I believe the lines uh, that he took were from the, the poem, or if not, from some lines that recall the poem later in the story. So here's Ken Leo's kind of commentary or, or analysis on those lines and the story. So the quote starts here. These are not my words. These are Ken Leo's words. In this story, as two children born in the first decades of the 21st century grow up, fall in love and grow old together and apart, they find themselves experiencing the historical events that have come to define contemporary China in reverse order. The Beijing Olympics, the Tiananmen protests, the economic reforms, the cultural revolution, the great famine, the Korean War, the Japanese invasion. I remember breaking down in tears as I neared the end, much as I did when I read Martin Amos's Time's Arrow. It was days before I could contemplate the story calmly again. When speculative fiction deals with historical atrocities, there is often a danger that the suffering of hundreds of millions is reduced to mere background, to bare setting for some novum or clever idea. But Bao Shu avoids this trap brilliantly. The speculative conceit here is a tool to highlight the agony and rage of history, to bear witness to the real events that my great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and myself witnessed and experienced, to make the abstractions of history concrete. He's got away with words, this man, doesn't he? That's the end of the quote. Um, so the reference to Martin Amos's Time's Arrow makes sense. It's not a book I've read. I had to look it up on, you know, doing some high-level research on Wikipedia. And... I also found some commenters arguing online in English, these are Westerners, about whether or not Bao Shu's story is original, and those guys also referenced Time Zaro. That's what led me to the Wikipedia page. So Wikipedia taught me Time Zaro is a reverse chronology novel, but it's about a Holocaust doctor. So it's a German living backwards through German history rather than a Chinese person living backwards through Chinese history. And it's Nazi Germany rather than, well, it's not just communist China in uh, what has passed uh, shall, I'm, I'm just going to shorten it to what has passed, it's such a mouthful. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm waffling here. But a, a key difference between Time's Arrow and what has passed is that the narrator of Time's Arrow does seem to notice occasionally that his world doesn't make sense. From what I recall in Bao Shu's story, things kind of feel strange to you as the reader, but I think that the characters take everything at face value. I think they express regret that technology is regressing and that the things they used to be able to do with technology can't be done anymore. Things take longer. But I think at the metaphysical level, everything is just kind of, the characters just passively observe time reversing and live through it, going about their lives. I found a really cool section uh, on the Times Arrow Wikipedia article where it references a couple other stories that deal with time being experienced in reverse in one way or the other. Uh, both films, not books. So, quote from Wikipedia for Times Arrow starts here. As in the French film Irreversible from 2002 and the American film Memento from 2000, the technique of reverse chronology accentuates the importance of the trauma on which the narrative is centred. So in Time Zaro, the trauma is the stuff that this guy did, his his role in the Holocaust. That's kind of the thing that um, has sent time out of whack. In Irreversible, I believe it's it's a rape that sends the kind of chronology out of whack. That's the central trauma. And in Memento, 
well, like I won't spoil it actually, but there is a there is a sen- there is a trauma back in time or at the origin point, as it were. But I cannot say what it is because you, if you haven't seen that film, you need to go watch it. It's directed by Christopher Nolan, the guy who did um, oh gosh, Inception, uh, Matthew McConaughey in space movie, whose name I have forgot, I've totally forgotten. What else did he do? He did um, oh he did the Batman films. No big deal. Yeah. So anyway, you must you must watch Memento. Back on point. Um, I think trauma is a good angle or lens or perspective or whatever you want to call it to look at what has passed shall in kinder light appear or W-H-P-S-I-K-L-A whoopsicla don't think I'll be saying whoopsicla um, but what exactly the trauma is in what has passed I think it's a subjective question because there's lots of there's lots of traumas in the last lifetime's worth of Chinese history or the last hundred years if you want to call it that there is kind of an official term, um, I forget the original Chinese, uh, but the English is a hundred years of humiliation. It's used to refer to kind of the weak state China was in from the end of the Qin, Qing, sorry, Qing dynasty through to, I think the idea is the founding of the People's Republic of China, but I think you could, you could extend it further and look at kind of humiliations inflicted by the communist party if if you allow me to have a not very controversial opinion here in other words up traumatic upheavals and tragedies have been happening in mainland china for you know a lot of recent history and this story touches on a lot of them through both the conceit of time going backwards but also the conceit of following this guy's life literally from birth to the end of his life if if um you'll allow me to spoil that part but yeah, um, there's there's also the romantic heartbreak in the story, like that Ken Leo quote mentioned. Uh, this character kind of has his um, his heart broken because he, there's a, a lover he he can never quite reach and falls in and out of touch with. So I don't know. I that could be the point. The 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 thing it all hinges on that sends this guy's life out of whack. I I didn't feel like there was any central point that was leaping out of me. Could be could be one particular trauma in the timeline, maybe Tiananmen. Or it could be the failure of this guy at some particular point to connect with the love of his life or the point where they departed. It kind of all adds up to the same total, no matter how you order it. You could take all these events from history and put them in the chronology we're familiar with, time going forwards, or you could reverse them, but it's still the same equation. It's like basic primary school maths. An idea struck me um, just a second ago as I was recording. I don't know if any of you listened to the Lushun and Weeds episode where I asked uh, the guest Matt Turner if he could pick a song that made him uh, the the story made him think of because the story was making me think of an old uh, song by the band Incubus. Um, I'm uh, the the idea of like trauma over history is making me think of a song I've been listening to recently. So I'm going to be self indulgent and play you a wee bit of it. I think it's called 10,000 Years by the band Candaria. Oh, correction, 10,000 Tears, but he rhymes tears and years.
Thank you for enduring that indulgence. I hope it wasn't too annoying. Now I'd like to talk a little bit about the uh, publication history of this story. It's an interesting one because although it was written in Chinese, it was never published as such, just passed around privately. And that's probably because it's um, pretty unpublishable in mainland China. I imagine because it touches on a lot of uh, sensitive political and historical areas. But probably the standout is its depiction of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. If, if I'm being honest and going off my own understanding of how uh, different topics are prioritised by the censorship uh, department or people, the censors of, of the Chinese state, that's a really big no-no, is um, an honest depiction of, or any depiction, but especially an honest depiction of the killings that happened at Tiananmen Square in 1989. Um, there's probably some other politically awkward, not ne- maybe not necessarily, what's the word I'm looking for, um, inflammatory, but just politically awkward moments too, by merit of time going backwards. So for example, um, the Kuomintang, the KMT, uh, the losers of the Chinese Civil War, in this story, they're the winners of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, they invade from Taiwan with US assistance and defeat the Chinese Communist Party in the Civil War. Um, it, it occurs to me here, if, if you're wondering how on earth he makes it work, that time is going backwards, kind of the, 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 min, the minutia of, of life works forwards. So um, I don't think this is in the story, but as a hypothetical, if the main character drinks water, he raises the glass to his lips and the water goes down his throat. This stuff goes forward. It's just that the big historical events to go in reverse order, and some of them, like this invasion, are reversed. So the Guomindang don't leave China and go to Taiwan, they leave Taiwan and arrive in China. And they don't lose the war, they win the war. It, it's a, I, I think thinking about <laughs> when exactly it's, it switches from the minutia of basic things going forward and big events going backward, I don't know if other people find it easy to get their head around this sort of thing. It really befuddles me if I think about it too much and I would need to get it down on paper. But the story doesn't bog you down in this stuff. Um, it's kind of like a, it's really character focused story and the uh, things moving backwards, the historical events moving backwards are kind of just an ambience. You get some paragraphs that describe them happening uh, peppered throughout the story, um, which don't strictly connect with the, the character's arc. But they are so interesting and so well written that even if they are technically, uh, what is the word, info dumping or oh, what is the more formal formal word? Oh dear, means explanation. It's escaping my mind. But even if they are um, showing, not telling, or tell, they're telling, not showing, sorry, even if they are telling and not showing, they're very readable and I don't mind. Um, so yeah, publication wise, what has passed is an odd one out in the Broken Stars anthology because there is a little uh, section in the opening matter which shows every story's publication history and every story has a Chinese name and first place of publication bar this one and some of the stories have a first place of English publication that came before um, Broken Stars. So there's one interesting exception, and that's Han Song's Salinger and the Koreans, which seems to have first been published uh, bilingually in a Guggenheim exhibition on modern Chinese art and culture that was called Tales of Our Time, or Gu Xinbian. And that name is a riff, according to the uh, website for said exhibition, but aka it is the actual Chinese title of a story by Lu Xun, Old Tales Retold, so Gu Xin Xinbian, Old Tales Retold. Um, but the exhibition 
gave a slightly different English name. They called it Tales of Our Time. So uh, I'm, this might seem a bit divergent, but I do think a recurring theme of this podcast, and I'm sure of a lot of studies of Chinese literature, is that all roads do seem to lead back to Lushun, or perhaps they lead forwards if time can be reversed. So the publication history section for um, what has passed is an interesting one. I've got the book in front of me. I'm going to read it verbatim so that I don't get anything wrong here. So first, let's read a kind of more typical example that we can contrast the Baoshu story with. So we've got Goodnight Melancholy by Xia Jia. So this is how the copyright acknowledgements go for that one. Goodnight Melancholy, Wan An Yu Yu by Xia Jia, and then Xia Jia rendered as Chinese characters. Translated by Ken Liu. First Chinese publication, Science Fiction World. Ke Huan Shijie, June 2015. First English publication, Clark's World, Marks to the... Marks, God, Freudian slip, March 2017. English text, 2017, Xia and Ken Liu. And then here's what the Baoshu story looks like. What has passed shall in kinder light appear, by Baoshu, and then Baoshu's name, rendered as Chinese characters. Translated by Ken Liu, no Chinese publication, first English publication, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, March, April 2015. English text, 2015. Baoshu and Ken Liu. So, in other words, this was published in English somewhere else first, but never in Chinese first. And one thing that means is we don't get to see the original Chinese title in this uh, in this book. I had to, to find out that the name of the story was uh, Da Shi Dai Great Era in its original Chinese. I had to go to Wikipedia where that information was available. If it hadn't been available there, I probably would have tried looking on the Chinese language internet. But thanks to Wikipedia, I didn't have to in this case. So another interesting thing I found online that I should mention is I found the website of the magazine, um, Science Fiction and Fantasy Magazine, that originally published um, what has passed. And although there were lots of stories in that that all could have provided the cover art, it was Baoshu's story that the cover art was illustrating. And although it was maybe a slightly ropey Photoshop job, I thought the concept was really good. So we had two young uh, Chinese kids stand, a boy and a girl, just like the characters at the start of the story, standing side by side. And in the background, we have the bird's nest from the 2008 Olympics in like a nighttime scene. And I think there might be I think there might be fireworks there accompanying it, and using the Chinese characters for numbers, it's got the one, two, three in a circle, a clock face, basically. Although, I, I suppose if you couldn't read the characters, you could probably work out that it's a clock face and those are numbers. And I think they're done in, in kind of a, uh, what's the word, a deep red and kind of in a handwriting style. So it, it didn't it didn't quite work, but the concept was poignant and quite, quite on on hitting the nail on the head without being um, accurately summing up the feel and the content of the story without feeling super obvious and lame. So yeah, um, there's a fun wee waffle and something you can uh, go and look up if, if you're curious. So in these uh, solo episodes, I usually um, set aside a slot to talk about the translator and the author, but in the sci-fi season's uh, previous episodes, I have talked about Ken Leo quite a lot, so there's probably no need to introduce him again here. Uh, I can just mention though that in Broken Stars he stresses uh, some things about Baoshu's name. Uh, he says that if, if you render it in the Latin alphabet, like A, B, C, D, E, F, G and so on, you should write it as one indivisible unit, one word, one six-letter word, Baoshu, and that is because it's an online pen name. A little look on, I think, Wikipedia told me Baoshu's real name is Li Jun, of course, rendered as two words, because those are two characters. 
and it's it's a name, a surname and a given name, the drone. And if you've been listening to this show for a wee while, or if you just know your stuff, this will sound familiar. Um, as I've learned, pen names and these days bulletin board usernames are much more of a thing in Chinese literature than English literature. So just looking back on authors we've covered in previous episodes, uh, Lu Shun is a pen name, Murong Shui Tsun is a pen name, Zhu Zhu is a pen name, Ding Ling is a pen name, A Yi is a pen name, Yan Ge is a pen name, Fei Dao is a pen name and maybe also an internet username, and the same goes for Xia Jia. So in the case of Bao Shu, does that pen name have any particular meaning? Well, I, I found that it's a, it is a borrowed name from a character by Jin Yong, the Wuxia godfather. It's a villain in one of his stories. From what I could uh, gather as well, and please do message in and correct me if I'm wrong, it can mean divine tree or also treasure tree, Bao Shu. Not entirely sure about the treasure tree. I think that was what Google uh, Auto Translate was giving me on some uh, Chinese language web pages. But yeah, anyway, let's find out a little bit about Bao Shu. Who is he and what's his writing career? And where did this pen name come from? So while he was doing his undergraduate and masters at Peking University, aka Beijing Dashui, aka Beida, uh, Bao Shu became famous under this username Bao Shu on two forums, aka bulletin board sites, aka BBS, as they're called in China. So one of those BBS was his campus BBS, BDWM BBS. I hope you like acronyms. Um, so I guessed at first that the BD in BDWMBBS did for Beida, and I found through Google that I was correct. And I've also found out through Google that the WM stands for Weiming, so Beida Weiming BBS. Beida Weiming's uh, BBS has a pretty cool front page, by the way. It's got four little, well, not little actually, quite large, graphically uh, large and very cute cats on it. Illustrations, not pictures, just so you know. Uh, the other BBS was SMTH uh, BBS, and that stands for Shuimu Tsinghua. So that's from Tsinghua University or Tsinghua Dashui. Tsinghua University, if you like, and that's one of Beijing's other elite universities. So the the point here is, Bao Shu was posting on the Beida and the Tsinghua University's bulletin boards or forums. That's where he kind of got his initial following or readership. In translation, Bao Shu is best known for writing *The Redemption of Time*, published by Tor and uh, Head of Zeus. And it's a sort of a fanfic sequel or expansion to the Three Body Problem, that's Liu Cixin's big trilogy, which really put Chinese sci-fi on the map, both worldwide and to some extent within China. So in Chinese, Bao Shu's Redemption of Time had quite a different name. It was called San T X Guanxiang Zhuzhou. Sorry if I messed up those tones. And that original title, Guanxiang Zhuzhou doesn't translate to the redemption of time. So Santi, that is three body. I'd hope you would have learned that by now from the sci-fi season episodes. If you're a new listener, you are excused. But um, I had to do some fiddling with my dictionary and translation app to find out what Guanxiang Zhuzhou actually means. There, there does seem to be, well, there is, there is an official translation of this original Chinese title, which is Three Body X Aeon of Contemplation. I think that's a nice name. Um, so I tried deciphering, like I said, to see if Guanxiang Zhuzhou does mean something like Aeon of Contemplation. And from what I gathered, Guanxiang seems to mean kind of like looking upon, observing, reflecting, um, maybe with some uh, spiritual overtones, undertones. 
connotations, that feelings. Um, and Jujo, from what I could gather, means the universe, or Zhou means the universe. Zhu is maybe some grammatical thing that my understanding of Chinese is too weak to help me understand. So yeah, um, contemplating the universe with a peaceful or maybe melancholic feeling. I don't know if the aeon in aeon of contemplation was an addition or there's just a meaning implying aeon that I wasn't catching. Please do, if, if you have thoughts on, on this stuff, zap me a message. Although I will, I did talk to a, um, a proper Chinese, a, a, bil a bilingual uh, speaker of English and Chinese who helped me out with this one. I will mention that later in the episode. So let's march on from uh, meandering ponderings of translations of titles and just kind of consider this book to be called The Redemption of Time. So anyway, um, Bao Shu wrote The Redemption of Time or San TX when he was abroad um, in the Netherlands actually doing his PhD at the ooh, here's a chance to murder some uh, some Dutch Katholieke Universiteit Leuven so the Catholic University in Leuven I think that's how you say Leuven if you're listening and you're Dutch or you speak uh, Dutch and I've got it wrong do send me hate mail zap me a message and telling me you know tell me I'm terrible I deserve it when Death's End came out in Chinese near the end of 2010, that's where Baoshu was. He was in Holland, and he had no access to this uh, exciting end to the trilogy. And of course, the Dutch translation was not forthcoming anytime soon, and neither was the English one. So to get, uh, to, get, to get this book, to be able to finish the trilogy, a friend back home sent him either scans of the pages or pictures. Uh, I found contradictory sources there telling me different things. Uh, I... I I do know that some of my uh, colleagues back in China thought taking an iPhone picture of a page was as good as a scan. Maybe Baoshu's friends are a bit more professional than that. Anyway, it's beside the point. Uh, he was sent images of the book's pages over the internet by a friend. That's how he read it. And he, even in this kind of, I don't know how, what, what's the right adjective here? In this inconvenient form, he still devoured the book. And then in three weeks, apparently, he'd written uh, his own sequel, Three Body X, and posted it online. And just... I suppose a year or less than a year after that, Liu Cixin had given it his approval and his publisher, so the publisher of Santi, the original Chinese three-body, who are Chongqing Press, they published Three-Body X, Santi X, Guanxiang, yes, Guanxiang Zhuzhou, uh, and it was technically part of the canon, the fourth entry in the series. Uh, I've got some words by Mingwei Song, or Song Mingwei, as you sometimes see his name rendered, who uh, teaches at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, and he's one of the foremost... Actually, I'm taking from the quote here, so let's just read the quote. Dr. Mingwei Song of Wellesley College in Massachusetts, one of the foremost academics studying Chinese science fiction, described the redemption of time to The Verge as more playful than the original trilogy, and that Baoshu is very interested in exploring the nature of time, what time does to consciousness, and how time shapes our experiences. So yeah, that's... I haven't actually noted where that quote's lifted from, that's not good. Anyway, it gets the information we need to know across. So since um, Santi X, Baoshu's career has taken off, and in translation, he's become a presence mostly through the translation of this book, Redemption of Time. Uh, he's published other titles in Chinese since, and as I understand it, I think some of his other stories have come out in Clark's world, although... I have to admit, I didn't check up on that, but you can check yourselves. Um, yeah, so What Has Past Shaolin Kinder Light Appear came out in 2015 in the fantasy and science fiction magazine, and then again, I think just a few years later, in Ken Leo's Broken Stars. 
if you're on the English language internet and you want to hear Bao Shu talk in English, because remember, he studied abroad, he's, he's seen a lot of the world, uh, there is a podcast episode by the South China Morning Post, which is called Inside China. Is this the golden age of science fiction? Uh, there's an article with that title and a corresponding podcast episode. And um, there's a few different figures involved in Chinese sci-fi who uh, have little spots on that episode. And I do believe there is a bit where Bao Shu is phoning in and you can hear his voice speaking English. It's interesting. Uh, there's also a shot of him in Head of Zeus's sci-fi magazine, uh, which is available as a PDF on their website. I think they've, they're have they just on the first issue at present. So the shot has uh, several of HOZ's uh, authors and other, well, authors and the boss uh, heading to an event. So in that shot, there's Nicholas Cheatham, who's, I believe, the head editor and boss of Head of Zeus. And with him, there is Stanley Chen Chiofan. Chen Chiofan. Stanley Chen, Stanley Chan, who we had on our episode discussing Wastetide. There is a British uh, sci-fi author, Adrian Tchaikovsky. And then there's also Liu Cixin and Ken Liu. And there is Bao Shu. There he is with the superstars. Um, there's a lot more about Bao Shu, unsurprisingly, on the Chinese language internet. So I dived in and through the magic of Google Auto Translate, I got a wee excerpt from an interview with, a, I think, a Hong Kong magazine. I think they have like a, I think they're called HK01, if I remember right. And uh, they, I I don't quite know how their editorial works, but in this interview, the interviewer is called Zero One Philosophy. So let me just read this wee excerpt. This is uh, auto-translated by Google and then tidied up by myself because the English was a bit messy. So I think I captured the meaning of the original Chinese better, but I will put a link in the show notes if you want to read the whole interview yourself. Yeah. So, O1 Philosophy, speaking to Bao Shu. When you read philosophy, what impact does philosophy have on your science fiction worldview? Bao Shu. Many philosophical propositions are the subject of science fiction, such as Plato's metaphor of the cave, brain in a tank experiments, and the VR and the VR technology we're talking about today. The movie The Matrix deals with topics much like these. Science fiction is a kind of literature after all. Its purpose isn't to explain philosophical arguments, but to offer perspectives and possibilities. End, end of the quote there. So, Bao Shu, as you kind of might guess from this question and this the topic of the question and the answer he gives, and from the wee comment earlier from uh, Song Mingwei, Mingwei Song, uh, Bao Shu is not really a hard sci-fi writer like Liu Cixin, so it's interesting that he wrote the, fifth, the fourth Three Body book, because Three Bodies fairly hard sci-fi. Um, Bao Shu seems to be a little more into, uh, I've seen the word soft, playful, philosophical. Um, I think I have a very neat way of putting it. I think he seems to be more into metaphysics than physics. First principles of how physics works, rather than physics itself, and then bending them like he does in What Has Passed, where he just sets time running backwards and puts humans in that setting. There's my cool take of the of the episode. So rambling about Bao Shu and Ken Liu and publication and translation, all that aside, let's talk about the actual story itself. So the story begins with the main character Xia Baosheng's birth, and it's his birth is portended in a really interesting way. So I'm going to read just kind of the opening segment of the story, starting from here. One. My parents named me Xia Baosheng, hoping I would live a life full of precious memories. I was born on the day the world was supposed to end. Mum and Dad told me how strange flashing lights appeared in the sky all over the globe, accompanied by thunder and lightning. 
as though the heavens had turned into a terrifying battlefield. Scientists could not agree on an explanation. Some said terrestrials had arrived, some suggested the Earth was passing through the galactic plane, still others claimed that the, Earth, the universe was starting to collapse. The apocalyptic atmosphere drove many into church pews, while the rest shivered in their beds. In the end, nothing happened. As soon as the clock struck midnight, the world returned to normality. The crowds, teary-eyed, embraced each other and kissed, thankful for God's gift. Many petitioned for that day to be declared the world's new birthday as a reminder for humanity to live more honestly and purely and to treasure our existence. The grateful mood didn't last long and people pretty much went on living as before. The Arab Spring happened, followed by the global financial crisis. So I think we're told that the uh, Beijing Olympics happens when Xia Baosheng is four. Yeah. The opening ceremony of the Olympics, it happens when Xia Baosheng is four. So that means he's born four years before the Olympics. But in this timeline, that means four years ahead. If you Because time starts moving backwards from when after he's born. So I guess he's born 2012. And then age four, the Olympics happen. And he meets his mum's... Well, he's known from birth, actually. His mum's friend's daughter, Chi-Chi, who's the same age as him. But Chi-Chi, his first memory of Chi-Chi is uh, watching the Olympic ceremony with her. And it's clear from the start, he just thinks she's absolutely wonderful. And it's pretty clear that they're going to fall in love, or at least that Baosheng is going to fall in love with Chi-Chi. And they're uh, separated not long after this, just before they start primary school. And then in the second part of the story, because the story is broken into, I guess chapters or subchapters or whatever and so in number two Baosheng gives Chi Chi a translation of Pushkin I guess in the original this would be in Chinese I don't know if this was I, I, I'm guessing that there was a standard Chinese translation and because there wasn't a standard English one Ken Leo reached out to his friend Anatoly but don't know that's all speculation anyway I think I should read you the two verses of poem that are included uh, because it's where the story's English title comes from. So here we go. Life's deceit may fortune's fawning turn to scorn, yet as you grieve, do not anger, but believe in tomorrow's merry dawning. When your heart is rid at last of regret, despair, and fear, in the future what has passed shall in kinder light appear. So it's really nice. Especially that last sentence. It was a good choice by, I guess, Baoshu or or Ken Leo to make that the title. So the two excerpts I've read points about reminders to live more honestly and purely, treasure your existence, look back, don't look back in anger, as Oasis said. I think that's a big theme, a very human theme in what could be a very kind of dry historical or political or sci-fi story. There's a lot of human spirit in the story, which really is its the source of its strength, if not the kind of fun conceit that makes you read it. The source of its resonance, maybe that's a better word than strength. So the story progresses, um, I'm just going to flick through to give you an idea of what kind of things happen. Okay, I'll read you an excerpt here. Do, 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 do. Hmm. Right, here's another excerpt. Right before my graduation, the factional struggles within the Communist Party grew more intense. It was said that the leader of the reformists, Zhao Ziyang, had been relieved of his duties and placed under house arrest. 
The news was like the spark that set off a powder keg and the long repressed rage among the population erupted in a way that shocked everyone. Students at all the major universities in Beijing went into the streets to march and protest, and with the support of Beijing citizens, they, oper they occupied Tiananmen Square, which drew the attention of the world. A city of tents sprouted in the square, and some protesters even erected a statue of the Goddess of Liberty in front of the Gate of Heavenly Peace. The charter of the drafter of Charter 08, Liu Xiaobo, returned to China from overseas. He made a speech at the square vowing to go on a hunger strike until there was true reform. The whole nation was inspired. Young people began to arrive from everywhere in China, and a mass movement gained momentum. Even ordinary citizens in Beijing mobilized to support the students. It's especially interesting because if you take away the details about Liu Xiaobo and Zhao Ziyang, which are, as I understand it, they are reversed. They've kind of, the order of how they relate to Tiananmen has been switched around. But the description of the gathering in the square itself, that's totally sequential and linear. That matches our own history. And there's no, f there's no ornamentation there. There's no fictionalization. He's just describing what happened in Tiananmen. And... Although, you know, reporting real historical events shouldn't seem a crazy thing to find in a book of in a book by Chinese writers, but that's the world we live in. Um especially in a sci-fi story, it's it's just an interesting and unique thing, certainly very unique in this collection, uh Ken Leo's put together. Okay, here's another interesting passage. This is about uh Bao Sheng becoming a sci-fi writer. So this is obviously a little bit about um Bao Shu writing kind of with the narrator, inserting himself as the narrator in, in some ways. And it's referencing um, real major texts in Chinese sci-fi, so listen out and see if you can catch them. Science fiction was also popular. Ye Yonglie's Little Know-It-All Roams the Future sold millions of copies, and Zheng Wenguang's Towards Sagittarius was flying off the shelves. I gradually became a fan. Only science fiction could liberate me from the weight of daily life and allow me a little pleasure. It was too bad that there were so few Chinese science fiction books, and not many foreign works were being translated. I soon finished all the ones I could find. Inspired by my reading, I tried my hand at writing and ended up with a book called Little Know-It-All Roams the Universe, which was a sequel to Ye Yonglie's famous work. At first, I passed the draft among friends, but then I got to know a young man named Yao Haijun, who helped me obtain Mr. Ye's permission and found me a publisher. The story gave me a bit of fame, and, it was, and I was called a rising star of science fiction. Encouraged, I wrote another book called Little Know-It-All Roams the Body, which was meant to teach readers some interesting facts about the human body. Unfortunately, this book caused a lot of controversy. Some argued that I was stealing too much from Ye Yonglie. Some suggested I was tarnishing Chinese science fiction with portrayals that encouraged lavicious thoughts. Still others claimed that my work was an example of capitalist liberalism and contained metaphors criticizing the Communist Party. I was writing at a fairly turbulent time when ideological debates were on the rise. There were even sporadic student movements again. The central leadership probably wanted to create the opportunity for another purge, so they initiated an effort to cleanse society of spiritual pollution. Right, so there's a lot going on in what I just read there. Um, I know that Ye Yonglie's, I think, I don't know which uh, which of those two titles was the real foundational new Chinese sci-fi story by Yong, Ye Yonglie, but that's invoked. And the author writing a book, which is a sort of sequel involving the body. Clearly, if you've been listening, um, you'll know that's an allusion to Three Body Problem and uh, Bao Shu's Three Body X. And 
I so I haven't read um, Redemption of Time slash Three Body X, but um, just looking at the Wikipedia page, apparently he got in a little trouble or got in controversy or whatever you want to say by including like a female anime character like some sort of thing possibly a sexualized one and i I think that might have come up stuff like this might have come up before um there were leo sushin in his story um what do you call it devourer had a similar sort of holographic character and i think we've mentioned in previous episodes just how popular this Japanese pop culture is with younger people in China. So yeah, that's an interesting thing that um, I would love to talk about, but I've not read Redemption of Time. But I can see the reference. Having done that research into Redemption of Time, I now understand that reference in the story. But he has paired that little controversy with real Chinese history. Um, In the 80s, when China was liberalizing, the government tried to backpedal or control it or react to it a little. Uh, Deng Xiaoping's government despite being a liberalizing government, launched an anti-spiritual pollution campaign. But of course, because time is reversed, that campaign came quite a long time before uh, Tiananmen Square in real life. But in this story, it has come after Tiananmen Square. And that's just part of the fun of the story. I, I can't say much more than that. Anyway, let's skip forward a wee bit more and find another excerpt to read. Okay, find a good bit. For years, the government had been following a policy of buy rather than build. This created a false appearance of prosperity in the economy, but hollowed out China's industrial infrastructure. The gap between the wealthy and the poor grew, and anger at the government grew along with it. Everywhere, a spectre-like name haunted China, a name that gradually grew in prominence. People said, this man, oh, sorry, people said, this man will bring China fresh hope. He was called Mao Zedong. A few years earlier, he had held the post of secretary of the Sichuan Provincial Committee in the provincial capital of Chongqing, and his various policies, known by the slogan Sing Red Songs, Strike Black Forces, and involving public displays of communist zeal and intensive government intervention, had made Chongqing into a prosperous city. Many many ordinary citizens, especially poor peasants in the rural areas, supported him. The paramount leader of China, Hua Guofeng, was deeply influenced by Mao Zedong, and once Hua had gotten into power, he initiated the Great Proletariat Cultural Revolution, which sought to mobilize the people to bring down the capitalist rulers within the Communist Party. So, if you know your, what can I say, your CCP internal politics, you might see that Mao here is being, there might be a correct word for this, but I'm going to say superimposed over Bo Xilai, who was, um, a rival to uh, Xi Jinping for like kind of the future presidency and Xi's style and Bo's style are in some ways a bit different because um, Bo was he he, the thing about sing red strongs sorry sing red songs strike black forces that's that was Bo Xilai's kind of signature brand or signature policy or approach or whatever you want to call it he was kind of a he was summoning the ghost of Mao, if you like, in his uh, kind of populist way of governing uh, locally in Chongqing. Mao himself wasn't wasn't working or from Sichuan, he was a Hunan guy. So it's an interesting way that um, Bao Shu has kind of fused and coded references to these two different sections of Chinese history, one properly quite old now, and one a lot more recent. So yeah, um, let's flick forward one more time and see what we get. Okay, I actually only flick forward one page, but there's quite a good um, good little segment here. Quote starts here. During those years, even bright-coloured clothing was forbidden. 
No forms of culture or entertainment were permitted, since they were all corrupted by feudal, American capitalist or Soviet revisionist influences, except for the eight model revolutionary operas. One time, I found a dirty, ragged copy of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone abandoned in a public bathroom, and tears filled my eyes. I took it home and read it in secret several, ta several times, but in the end, terrified of being accused of harbouring contraband, I burned it. Sometimes, as I studied the latest directives from the Paramount leader, I would think, what happened to all the eras I have lived through? When I was a young man, the streets were packed with bell-bottoms and profiteers. When I was a teenager, TV dramas from Hong Kong and Taiwan filled the airwaves. When I was a child, it was possible to play games on the web, to go and see the latest movies from Hollywood, and there were the Olympics and 3D films. Did those times really exist? Where did they come from, and where have they gone? Or was it all just a dream? Maybe everything was simply a game played by time. What was time? What was there besides nothingness? Before us had been nothingness, and after us will be nothingness. So I don't know if you guys have noticed on the show, I seem to be drawn to existential stuff, and I have a little pet theory that I think I think I voiced this pet theory to Shaja in the Shaja episode, that um, because whether it's historically or more recently, China's mm, spirituality, if you want to call it that, is a bit more secular. There's not so much of a belief in a big magical god who does everything nice for you and a lovely afterlife you go to where you die. That I feel like there's a little bit more of an existential perspective on things, which actually reminds me, Satra. Satra is in this story. I need to find the uh, bit where Satra appears and or Sartre, whatever he's called, the French philosopher. So bear with me. I will find the bit where Baosheng meets Sartre and share my thoughts on that. Okay, I'm about to uh, reference, or not reference, the story is about to reference Mao Dun. I believe Mao Dun got mentioned in our Dingling episode. He founded the left-wing, uh, or progressive, or whatever you want to call it, a girls' school that Dingling attended in Shanghai. And I believe he really was um, Minister for Culture after the uh, CCP took power and founded the PRC. But he's, he's appearing in this story. So, yeah, here we go. <clears throat> One day, I received a call from Mao Dun, the Minister of Culture. The Premier has asked you to attend a diplomatic function. There's a group of avant-garde Western writers visiting, and he thinks you know one of them. Who? I don't know the details. I'll send a car for you. That evening, a car took me to the Beijing Hotel, which had one of the country's best Western-style restaurants. Many important people were in attendance, including the Premier himself, who gave a welcome address. As I studied the foreign visitors, I recognised the writer I was supposed to know right away. I couldn't believe my eyes. After a series of boring speeches and a formal dinner, finally the, tame the, finally the time came to mingle and converse. I walked up to that man and said in my terrible French, That's good because my French is also terrible. Bonsoir, Monsieur Sartre. He gazed at me curiously through his thick glasses and gave me a friendly smile. I switched to English and introduced myself. Then I told him how much I admired oh, no. Le autre et le nôtre. Mm, I don't speak French. If it was a German philosopher, then it would be okay. Anyway, back, back to the story. And how I had written papers on it. I had never expected to see him in China. Well, Sartre quirked an eyebrow at me. I never expected anyone in China to be interested in my work. I lowered my voice. Before the Cultural Revolution, your work was very popular in China. Many people were utterly entranced by your words, though they, myself included, could not claim to truly understand your philosophy. 
However, I've always tried to understand the world through it. I'm honored to hear that. But you shouldn't think so highly of my words. Your own thoughts about the world are the most precious thing. Really, thinking itself is the only thing that is important. I must admit I'm surprised. I would have expected you to be a socialist. I smiled bitterly. Socialism is our life, but this form of life has turned me and many others into existentialists. Perhaps in that way the two are connected. What is your thought on existentialism? To quote you, L'existence précédé l'essence. The world appears out of an essenceless abyss. Other than time, it depends on nothing and it has no meaning. All meaning comes after the world itself, and this is fundamentally absurd. I agree with this. The existence of the world is absurd. I paused, and then, gaining courage, continued with the puzzle that has plagued me for years. Look at our world. Where does it come from? Where is it headed? When I was born, the internet had connected all parts of the globe and high-speed rail railways crisscrossed the country. The store shelves were full of anything one might desire, and there were countless novels, films, TV shows. Everyone dreamed of a more wonderful future, but now? The web and mobile phones have long disappeared, and so has television. We appear to live in a world that is moving backwards. Is this not absurd? Perhaps it is because our existence has no essence at all. Sir, said a smiling Sarch, I think I understand what is troubling you, but I don't understand why you think this state is absurd. If the existence of the world has meaning, the world must advance, don't you think? Otherwise, what is the point of generation struggling after generation? This world, the world appears to be twisted shadow of some reality. Sartre shook his head. I know the Chinese once had a philosopher named Zhuangzi. He told this story. If you give a monkey three nuts in the morning and four nuts in the evening, the monkey will be unhappy. But if you give the monkey four nuts in the morning and only three in the evening, the monkey will be ecstatic. In your view, is the monkey foolish? Uh, yes. Zhuangzi's monkey is a byword for foolishness among the Chinese. A mocking glint came into Satra's eyes. But how are we different from the monkey in that story? Are we in pursuit of some correct order of history? If you switch happiness and misfortune around in time, will everything appear normal to you? If evil exists in history, does it disappear by merely switching the order of things around? I felt like I was in the verge of understanding something, but I couldn't articulate it. And I've been reading for too long, and I don't want to spoil the answer Sartre gives. If you want to know what uh, Bao Shu's Sartre says to Bao Sheng, read the damn story. Because I'm not reading the whole thing on here. But yeah, um, I realize now I was a bit wrong to say no one ever questions the absurdity of the universe in this story, uh, as 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 is done in Martin Amos's Arrow of Time. They do. So I, I take back what I said earlier. What I didn't really touch on so much uh, was Chi Chi and Bao Sheng's story. I could go back and find some excerpts or comment on it. Uh, suffice to say, it it is the emotional heart of the story, and you're really rooting for uh, Bao Sheng to finally meet up with Chi Chi, and Bao Shu keeps you reading to the end with that hook, I think. I don't have any deep takes, just an appreciation for how touching that story is. If if I have any thoughts about the the plotting, I think just it, there's I think I mentioned this earlier. There seems to be two fates in the story. There's the fate of Bao Sheng slash Bao Sheng and Chi Chi's relationship, and there's the fate of China. And we ultimately see, as we've kind of shown in that little excerpt, the fate of a of a country is way out of your control. It is absurd. It is the forces of history and time that 
determine that. And it kind of applies to your own life too, but at least your own life belongs to you and is emotionally meaningful. Um, themes in the story. So like I said, powerlessness against fate and the turns of history. Um, we had that quote from Ken Leo uh, about the things his family have overcome. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. Ken Leo moved to the US when he was a kid. And uh, I think he moved from Gansu province, I think. Um, but his obviously the previous gen generations of his family had all been in China and he didn't he didn't specify which things chimed with him but clearly um clearly there's an emotional resonance in this story for the chinese people and the chinese diaspora which for me i am neither of those things it's all second or third hand but i think that doubles down on or emphasizes the powerlessness against fate and the mysteriousness of time and how you know uh, cause and effect how it's cause and effect is although you can trace things from a to b to c all the way to z in some ways cause and effect is such a strange opaque thing beyond our knowledge Whew, okay that's rather philosophical um i've got another little bullet point here that says about the smallness and power of the individual i've basically that's just a repeat of the previous point so we can skip that um my last bullet point says deeper take how we ascribe meaning and explanations to events so although we did have that part where um, the Bao Sheng was expressing frustration to his philosopher buddy about how nothing makes sense, that kind of contrasts with a lot of the rest of the exposition. That's the word I was looking for earlier, exposition, the uh, telling, not showing. So a lot of the exposition in the excerpts I read for you explain the events and kind of explain the cause and effect on the way that it makes sense. So in a way, that's Bao Shu's invention and, and cleverness as a writer, making the reverse tide of events make sense. But I also think it's um, on a more philosophical level and in a way that reflects real life. We ascribe meanings to things. When A happens and B happens, I think there's a tendency for people to come up with reasons on how how A made B happen, if, if you see what I mean. I'm sure there are philosophers you could cite on this and how we fallaciously see cause and effect that isn't necessarily there and it applies in this story because it really is just the simple conceit of reversing history but then the human mind wants to come up with rational explanations for how history could reverse so um like in the story like i said there's how exactly the kmt came back to china and beat the ccp in a civil war and then there's also mention of how america loses both the iraq and afghanistan wars and there's a whole explanation of how that happened. So yeah, um, I'm sure there are clever ways I could have gone deeper into that, but I think it's worth mentioning. I think it's relevant. Um, my rating for this story, I think I used to give funny ratings in the early episodes and I forgot to do it. So let's just say I give this story, or I rate this story five out of five reconstructions of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, that, that'll do. Um, my favorite moments. Okay, so I didn't want to read this um this moment, and I don't want to spoil it, but the very end of the story, as I've hinted, is Bao Sheng passing away. And without spoiling anything, without getting emotional, because it is a bit emotional, um, Bao Shu and Ken Liu as the translator wrote that so well. And the, what, the, what I'll say, what I will say is the death of the character as an old man has something to do with the universe and the fate of the universe and the flow of time and it relates to how he experiences his own passing away <sighs> that is getting me that's making me choke up um it's really well written 
and it's mysterious and beautiful at the same time. So yeah, it's good. Um, I also really like that bit I read you at the start, the strange uh, happenings around his birth. Makes sense, because in this story, he's the centre of the story, in a way he's the centre of the universe, but also it's his birth that the reverse of time the reversing of time happens around. And I love the mystery of, we don't really know why, speculations about aliens and the end of the world. It's just cool. On an aesthetic level, I thought that was cool. Um, and the section with Tiananmen, um, I think the thing, it's not so much that it was my favourite bit, but I was quite surprised it was there and in so much detail. But what I did really like was the way the players, uh, the historical players and the real people uh, were described. So Liu Xiaobo um, plays a really big part um, in the events in the story, but of course his role is re um, chronologically reversed. Same with Zhao Ziyang. If you don't know Zhao Ziyang and Liu Xiaobo, um, I have a couple of anecdotes. So Liu Xiaobo is, was a dissident writer, and he was in the news uh, a year or two ago because he was um, he was he had um, terminal cancer and was being treated whilst also being in custody. So I think his wife whose name I don't remember, but his wife was um, under house arrest and couldn't see him, I believe. Um, and it was quite a heart-wrenching news story. But the, the reason I have an anecdote is not very long after he passed away, um, I was heading on a, a wee holiday from Shanghai and I was doing quite a few stops. I wanted to see Dandong, the main border town between China and North Korea. And the best way to get there was getting yourself to Shenyang and then taking the fast train from Shenyang. So um, it also transpired that Liu Xiaobo had passed away in Shenyang in one of the hospitals somewhere in the city, not very long before I went up. And English language sources did not specify which hospital, but I went onto the Chinese language internet and managed to find the name of the hospital. So I did not go inside, but I did do a tiny wee pilgrimage and took a picture of what I think was the right building. I definitely had the right hospital area. I don't know if I had the right building in the hospital area, but yeah, um, it was definitely a, his story as a moving story. Uh, Zhao Ziyang, he was a government minister in uh, top one of the top uh, officials in Deng Xiaoping's government, the one which um, committed the Tiananmen atrocity. And it was kind of a house divided. There was a, I suppose you could say a liberal or reform-minded um, forward-looking wing, of which Zhao Ziyang was one of the top people, and there was a more hardline, um, I suppose, the words conservative and liberal and whatever, and left and right don't really apply easily, but just to a more hardline old school um, uh, wing, and the two were competing to persuade the president or, or whatever his role was, uh, Deng Xiaoping, how to deal with the protesters, and Zhao Ziyang was the effectively the good guy in the story who went down and talked to the protesters and tried to urge for restraint and ultimately he lost and uh, lost his position and was put under house arrest. But if you're looking for a really interested piece of translated non-fiction, um, there is a book, English title Prisoner of the State, which is mostly comprised of transcribed tapes which Zhao Ziyang recorded secretly or recorded under house arrest and then secretly friends helped him smuggle out these tapes and they were then transcribed in Chinese and even made it into publication in translation and that book's obviously it's just one man's perspective so it, it's not completely objective but it's a really interesting perspective on what happened um, in the run-up to the Tiananmen incident and the immediate aftermath and how you know, I'll say it, how the how the bad guys of history kind of won that one. Um, and 
kind of leads you to, or at least it led me to think, you know, what if Zhao Ziyang, his little faction or his team had persuaded Dong? What alternative timeline for it would have forked off and what's happening in that world now to ask a sci-fi question? Uh, yeah. So yeah, the book is Prisoner of the State. I got it from Edinburgh Central Library. So unless someone else has borrowed it, if you're in Edinburgh, <laughs> it's there in the library. Um, it'll definitely be available on Amazon. I think it's published by Simon and Schuster. It's not. It's not like a niche book at all. It's uh, it's out there. So yeah. Um, another another point for discussion in the story. Um, the intelligibility or or not for depending on different audiences. So um, Ken Leo points this one out right at the start of the story and well before the start of the story in his little intro so let me see what he wrote um what has passed in kinder what has passed shall in kinder light appear is a story about time although its first formal formal publication was an english translation it is in some ways the most chinese story in this entire volume the more one knows about the history of the people's republic the more the story's meaning comes into focus He's got a very good way with words. Come into focus. Uh, it's great. And yeah, very, um, what's the word? When you say with with brevity and concision, he, um, he really got the point across there. And I think there must have been things in this story I didn't spot. So for example, I only just on this reading did I spot the reference to the uh, sexual or perverted content in... Um, in in Baosheng and Baoshu's story, um, the anime girl thing, but there are lots of other things which I did spot that someone who's coming to the book from just a sci-fi perspective probably wouldn't. So I think my kind of upper what's the word high the high water line I think of the references I caught might be the Boshi Lai one or maybe some others. But yeah, it would be an interesting interesting thing for anyone who's lived in China or is a bit of a China obsessive um to test yourself on how much of the story makes sense and what's the most obscure reference you can catch um i think understanding history is the key thing here i don't think you need to really understand ccp or chinese politics to understand the references um and you i don't think there's anything too culturally deep you have to understand i think the cultural stuff is all very universal um enjoying watching TV shows, enjoying poetry, um, writing stories, it's all, it's, it, it is very cultural, but it's universal. It's not China specific. Um, it's really just the history, like Ken Leo says, which is an aid in getting the most kind of enjoyment or most getting the most content. I'm always looking for the right word. Um, getting the most out of the story, <laughs> whatever it, it happens to be, whatever essence you're extracting from the story, knowing a bit of the history is helpful that's for sure so i think that's about all i've got to say about the book um just a few more ending notes um first of all a thank you for one of my new twitter followers yeah so i'd like to thank leila heward i think that's how you say it um for giving me some pointers or discussing with me uh, the translation of santi x uh, guanxiang zhizhou um, an eon of contemplation and uh, Redemption of time and musing on which one is the best one because I, I my dictionary app and uh, Translator weren't really helping me with Guanxiang 
I won't read you the whole conversation, but Layla really helpfully said, um, I tend to prefer more literal translation, so Aeon of Contemplation feels more accurate. It also makes more sense than Redemption, which has Christian overtones, whereas Contemplation fits better with the Buddhist concept of Guanxiang. And like my reply to that was a little obvious. I said I was being sort of the devil's advocate guy saying, right, maybe Redemption of Time fits better with the content of the story. I'm not sure because I've not read it. And maybe Redemption is a better draw for Western customers because obviously selling the book is pretty important. Um, but yeah, that whole conversation that we had or exchange or whatever it is, is up on Twitter, which leads me to the plugs. If you'd like to find out extra and bonus information about the show, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Angus Likes Words. Uh, the show also has an Instagram account where I you also get advanced information and it's a great place to contact me contact me through DMs and whatnot. Uh, the IG username is Trichific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C, of course, stands for Translated Chinese Fiction. Uh, two other things to plug, I've been neglecting them recently, but I am going to try and properly upload to them again. So if you're in the PRC and you want a VPN free way to listen to the show, or if you have friends in the PRC who want exactly such a thing, I've been uploading episodes to Shimalaya, which is a Chinese podcast provider. Their servers are presumably inside the PRC, so it's VPN free. And I must say, it's actually, the hosting is free, just like YouTube. I don't have to pay for it. So. If I was really cunning, I would have signed up there first, got my RSS feed from then, and then I'd have a free podcast hoster. But um, yeah, probably probably wouldn't mesh that well with iTunes. But it is an interesting business model they've got going on there. Um, anyway, there's also YouTube. I um, I think we're completely up to date, but I put all the episodes on YouTube too. If, if you like listening to podcasts on YouTube, maybe while you're working or something, it's up there too. Um, you can support the show materially, i.e. with money, uh, in two places. Uh, there's the buy me a coffee, where it's like a one-off contribution. You can support my coffee habit, although these days it tends to be more bus ticket habit. That's the thing I'm spending money on regularly. Um, and Patreon, uh, which is where, if you don't know how Patreon works, it's a monthly recurring contribution. Cheapest one is one USD. And in exchange for that, you get access to lots of bonus content. And I'll give you shout outs on the show if you're giving $2 a month and so on. Um, I recently put up the show notes for the IE episode if you want kind of a glance under the car bonnet or the car hood. It's up there. And I'm intending to do more bonus shows. It is kind of just time independent. I am a little bit more busy, busy than I was earlier. Um, but yeah, those are the best ways to support the show, except there is a better way, and that is to spread the word about the show. That's the best thing you can do to support it. So tell your old school friends, tell that key friendly cadre who helped you survive the Cultural Revolution, which of course came just after the reform period and just before the revolution or something. Um, and tell your long lost love before time separates the two of you forever. And on that note, Zai Jian.